I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. I am Manoj Kewal Ramani, and today I have with me Lieutenant General Prakash Menon, and we are going to be talking about uh, the India-China relationship. uh and the future of the india china relationship given the turbulent year that uh we've had on the lac uh, and the reaction by the indian government uh, not just from the point of view of military force but also economic and other instruments um so gentlemen welcome to this conversation thank you manoj okay so let's just begin with looking at what's happened immediately for the the last sort of uh, commander level conversation that happened happened sometime in november which was the eighth round of talks uh we've had no significant change in status quo on the lac as it was say since late august early september both sides seem to be deadlocked um and we're hearing about the sort of disengagement proposals that have been put forward and that are being discussed uh, i wanted to first get your thoughts on this idea of disengagement that we're talking about where you know uh, both sides sort of step back to certain distance in certain areas uh, and there's a tussle over who withdraws where first and what does a withdrawal how does it impinge on sort of future deployment potentially in the case of a crisis uh, and the issue of you know uh, timing how much time it takes one to deploy given the differences in infrastructure and so on and so forth so firstly i wanted to get your thoughts on the disengagement proposals that are being talked about given that we don't necessarily know in detail what these are yeah i think the lack of detail is going to handicap uh, what is the contours of this disengagement proposals is what we actually see is people primarily speculating on what must have happened so i think we keep that in mind but the fact that we have had eight rounds of talks at the military level the commander level itself is indicative that there is a process which has political blessing on both the sides after all both sides keep emphasizing the fact that political guidance has been given to the military to actually now resolve it and uh, the the problem with this particular framework that the militaries have to sort this problem out is actually follows the china narrative that this is actually not a political problem in the sense that it has been created by military forces in action and of course they blame our military for actually forcing the chinese to take the steps that they have so they continue to maintain that position and as regards as to the disengagement the de escalation uh, the fact is that whatever little agreement took place was in the area of doklam after the incident before in fact the incident had happened and that actually caused the incident as we know it when the ceo of the unit went to check about what whether the chinese had withdrawn to where they supposed to. after that there has been no agreement which can be described uh, that there has been a deescalation so the dangerous thing is that in certain places apparently the forces are in eyeball to eyeball situation and that's definitely something 
which should be avoided because fog and friction of such a tense situation can actually explode in in ways which we can't imagine now and even be caused by some one single person who does something un, unintentionally so but i'm sure that the military commanders on both sides are aware of this possibility and we presume that one of the benefits of that those talks would be to reduce this possibility but i'm just speculating but i think this would be the first thing which the military commanders would have attempted to do that we do not get into a situation where uncertainty tension of the situation misjudgment miscommunications actually trigger a large explosion so we presume that this sort of whatever steps necessary on this part and this this means that there has to be a constant communication between local commanders on both sides and i think that probably in some way would have been done but i i must admit that i'm speculating but the fact is that nothing has happened goes to indicate that something like this would have come about the larger issue about what apparently there is no common ground for agreement because the chinese would say that you have occupied the kailash range and definitely you need to vacate from there we would say that that already that range is in our territory so the question of vacation does not arise and we would maintain that you have changed the disposition in what is disputed territory in dbo galwan the uh, hot springs penang so so we would actually maintain that you let it go back to status quo ante and that is where probably the rub ends that who moves back first what moves back what needs to move back these things therefore have not found any agreement and i think in many ways the talk seems to be stalemated because both sides have now reconciled to the fact that they would have to spend the winter on the ground there is no movement of major movement of forces back although some movement would i presume have taken place because such large forces in certain areas would not have been kept there they would have been slight but that again i am speculating but i would think that that would have been done purely from a practical point of view so both sides now are still meeted at in ladakh military talks have made no progress and it doesn't look like there's anything substantial going at the political or the diplomatic level so this is interesting i mean i the one thing about the fact that these talks are stalemated is uh, i mean from what we've been reading of course and all of this is source based leaked information there's nothing official that either government is really saying apart from the sort of standard statements about we are in communication um is you know the principle of whatever this deescalation or disengagement has to be based on uh should it be based on time taken for future deployment should it be based on distance that you go back uh and i guess in different areas and different terrains you will have to apply different principles and i guess that's one of the things that you know both sides are still locked in but i want to move on from that and i want to talk to you a little bit about the last uh, week or so right so we've seen uh india's external affairs minister speaking to the media 
quite candidly in the last 10-15 days. He had an interview with the Hindu. Uh, he had an engagement with the Lowy Institute recently. And he's uh, in, the, in his recent sort of comment with the, at the Lowy Institute, he sort of spoke about how the relationship with China is significantly damaged, how uh, you know the Chinese have given us five different explanations uh, as to why they have done what they have done and none of that really makes sense. Um, I want to understand from you generally because I know that you watch this. How would you sort of see India's, the Indian government's communication strategy in all of this? I mean, it's been very muddled through the process. Do we now seem to be getting a hang of it? Well, uh, let's say we are improving in that field because we couldn't have got worse because at one point in time, the Indian public and the international public were being informed by satellite warriors, as, as I described them in one of my articles. And there was hardly any information coming from official sources and that space was either filled up by, again, people who were inimical to us or media sources which use satellite photographs to explain to the Indian public the situation on the ground. And I think there was certainly a point in the initial part when we certainly could have done better. But maybe now, things seems to be at least there, there seems to be a regular update from the MEA. The foreign minister himself has been active. And he seems to be sending out a message that the relationship at, uh, has reached a very uh, low level as in recent times. And uh, we continue to make efforts to improve them is a message which we try. But... What he's telling is, the other message which he's given out is that unless this is resolved, it cannot be business as usual. That is also he has made clear. So if we were to tag the Ladakh just to the de-escalation and disengagement, I think, again, we might be making a mistake because fundamentally, we have to get the Chinese to agree on respecting the agreements which they have signed with us. Unless Chinese, both of us make that statement that that agreement will be respected, which means you cannot mass troops. That is an agreement. So even if we did something and they did not take, they could have told us you violated the agreement. They did not. They went into a military confrontation. That that definitely is a violation of the agreement. So I think it is not just de-escalation, disengagement. I think we have to get them to the larger framework of, of respecting the agreement. Okay. The, uh, one of the sort of parts, and again, this has been in the news for the last couple of weeks at least, and I know that you've again been following this uh, ever since the Doklam episode happened in 2017, uh, is this issue of uh, these new villages that seem to have come up along uh, the LAC, along sort of the China-Bhutan disputed territories, uh, and those then impinge on sort of the tri-junction with India and possibly Indian uh, claims, uh, sort of Indian territorial claims with regard to China. And there's been lots of discussion about how this is, again, salami slicing in a different format being applied uh, to the land boundaries. I wanted to get your thoughts on this and also what, uh, how India should be. Firstly, I find it strange that suddenly we've gotten so surprised by this because I just thought that this was... Uh, uh, this was expected after Doklam happened that these sort of changes in status quo would happen. And I think Xi Jinping had 
spoken quite clearly about you know border security in terms of people on the border so i'm a little surprised that pe- the people in india were surprised by this uh, but secondly how do we deal with this so uh, uh were we surprised we were, i don't think we could have been surprised at the official level because the type of activities they have t- undertaken is they have actually now made another road alignment in southeastern doklam initially it was west doklam which actually uh, could be used as a logistic base for a thrust through bhutan towards the siliguri corridor so basically it opens up another axis of uh, you can say for an offensive so it is a threatened being so they have created a threat Uh, they have deepened the threat which already existed that is point 1 two even in september when mahamalipuram meeting was taken place the indian intelligence agencies would have come to know because obviously such activities could not have been concealed from satellite and therefore despite that india has kept silent like it did to the uh western doklam also lot of construction has come up india has just kept quiet this time also so in in mamalipuram we were aware that this construction going on a policy was that we not raise the issue which means which is what we did actually post doklam when the construction took place but that policy continued which which shows that we acquiesced to uh china's military occupation of disputed territory and of course bhutan who uh, with who has always been a reluctant to confront the chinese on this issue kept quiet and now when this has taken place the bhutanese have denied that it is in their territory that denial indicates that bhutan bhutan says that no longer is doklam contest i mean that's what it, it means and and worse is india has also kept quiet again our policy seems to acquiesce to doklam's occupation military occupation by the chinese the signal that is sent to the chinese is the same signal which probably also was taken so that with and which probably also emboldened the chinese for its ladakh venture so uh, from my point of view it seems to be that we are not learning the lessons it is not that what we can do we can we can definitely cannot uh, we cannot i mean it would be impractical to think of launching a military operation to dislodge the chinese from uh, disputed territory which is actually bhutanese uh, and uh, the the what you which we will achieve enough definitely not worth the consequences that's not the issue the issue is india's silence is signifies equis that we are acquiescing to chinese military occupation of doklam to which we objected to initially then things changed and then we had wuhan we had mamalapuram now we have ladakh and now we still seem to follow the same line so i do not understand that what the indian leadership is reading and how they think that the chinese are going to take our silence we haven't even protested to the chinese Yeah, uh, yeah, publicly we haven't even acknowledged it to protest it. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's let's come to the piece that you written in the Deccan Herald recently, uh, talking about the sort of broad strategic shifts that are needed, uh, and uh, 
I mean, in that you talk about, you know, one of the operational shifts, I mean, I'll get to the strategic shift, but the operational shift in terms of dealing with salami slicing is uh, by enhanced uh, quid pro quo capacity. Now, again, quid pro quo capacity in terms of, say, when things are between Bhutan and China is very different in terms of quid pro quo capacity when it is uh, along the LSE between India and China. Um, how do we enhance, how do we create this capacity? Well, this is a military capacity which has to be created. We have it actually in many ways. Only we need to sort of reorganize it better. We, we The capacity which we wanted to create was based on the mountain strike hole, which I, would, I, I don't think is a good idea. Idea is to have smaller units. And I have, what I suggested in my article is brigade-sized unit, which we can move mobile, air mobile for that matter, so that we can apply it wherever we want it with the shortest possible notice. The problem is that the Chinese can nibble, and so can we. But you, for the nibbling, you need to be prepared in advance. And I'm sure this is, must be already done by the Indian Armed Forces because this has been their bread and butter for a long time. The question is the speed at which we should do it. For example... Our occupation of Kailash Range, which is our own territory, took us so long that we were first talking to the Chinese and the Chinese really was not interested in talking so much. At the moment we occupied the Kailash Range, then talks sort of turned around. The foreign ministers spoke to each other. The defense ministers spoke to each other. There was a change. I think we need to know to handle the Chinese. The Chinese recognizes strength. And unless India exercises the power that it has in the in the Himalayas, and that is not a power which can be just wished away, like people say another 1962 has happened. I certainly don't believe it. We have sufficient military power there, including air power which cannot be ignored by the Chinese. So the Chinese can threaten us with these large forces, but it will not be easy for them to apply them in the altitudes which we are talking about. And we have much more experience in that altitude than these Chinese soldiers. And if you, see, if you know about the recruitment policy of the Chinese armed forces, I mean, they have a very short tenure in the armed forces, most of them. So to think that the Chinese have become 10 feet tall, like they want us, everybody to believe, is what something which we understand, and I'm sure the official missionary understands that. So what we have to do is to disabuse the Chinese, that they can threaten us and we will concede or capsulate. And I think well, that one of the, one of the lessons of Ladakh to the Chinese, that they cannot threaten us with military force, and expect that there will be no resistance. I think they took the long lesson from the Dokla. And that is what I think we have to disabuse. But where again, we're going back because they're doing the same thing in Doklam. And the interesting part was the Doklam intrusion was actually came out in, broke into the public arena through a tweet from a Chinese. So it seems that China officially wanted the world to know that this is what it has done and nobody can do anything about it. Mm. And since it is followed by the silence of the, since Bhutan says it is not our territory and India is silent, 
And the Chinese message, remember, is not only to us, but to other guys who are watching the Chinese military behavior, strategic behavior, the entire Southeast Asian nations for that matter, would take a lesson from this, that after all, one of the things of the, the Ladakh is also to show Chinese military power and convey the message that we have arrived, we are strong, all of you guys better listen to us. That's for that's why it has to rise to be at a level of power which all it has to say is, we want this done and you do it. Yeah. The Asian hegemon. So I think India is a unique position to actually at least stop, if not slow down, if not halt the Chinese advance in this arena of psychological ascendancy. All right, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think one of the sort of key aspects of, you know, being, putting yourself in a position to do that is to obviously cultivate your own national power uh, and cultivate the sort of, and sort of develop the means and tools to be able to do that. And in your piece, you talk about how uh, India's national strategy must aim to defend its land borders while maximizing the growth of its maritime power. And, you know, when Jay Shankar talks about the fact that the Chinese have given us five different explanations, I guess one explanation that they haven't given, but is probably implicit, is that uh, we would like you to remain, uh, we would like you to continue to spend your resources on the land boundary uh, as opposed to developing maritime power, which essentially sort of drains our capacity to constrain the Chinese as they develop their naval power further. But, I mean, there is a question to be asked here, right? I mean, how do we go about doing this Particularly when we know that we have serious budget constraints. I mean, even before COVID, uh, I was looking at the numbers for last year and the last union budget, the Indian Navy was allocated some 41,000 crore rupees uh, as against a projected amount of 64,307 crore. Uh, and this budgeted amount wasn't enough to meet its existing committed liabilities. Today, we have reports about you know the Navy looking at a third aircraft carrier, uh, yet at the same time talking about cutting down the number of uh, sort of landing docks that it needs for amphibious assault. How do we sort of deal with this challenge? Because this is a real challenge, and you've written about it also, right? Across the board, the budget for our armed forces, a significant amount of it also is earmarked for pensions uh, and manpower expenses. So how do we do this? How do we build this capacity? I think uh, the in military, the political leadership has to now prioritize national security more than what they have done, which means there's nothing you can do except to increase the defense budget because you can't expect to become a maritime power of any consequence with the type of budget which has been allocated in the last, even throughout both the uh, periods of, the, of, the, of this government itself. And there are any amount of graphs to show how the money for capital budget has been shrinking over a period of time. Because of, as you said, the pension and so on. Well, you can't sort out the pension problem and try to do anything. You, there is no other way but to increase the defense budget because that is a national security imperative. It is not merely a question of how to balance the budget. If we can spend so much of money on Indian airlines or any other, so many other projects which have been done, surely national security can be given the money that we want. And by the way, in most, in behind the doors and outside, the political leadership 
always assures the military leadership, don't worry, we will give you what you want. But that normally doesn't happen because you've got to go through the grind of bureaucracy. Finance ministry will come into play. It never happens. I think we need a shift here because if you don't prioritize the national security, then the Navy will have to do what you want. They'll have to cut on this and cut on that. An aircraft carrier, the naval chief has made it very clear, is an absolute necessity. Unless India wants a small, to think small and be a coastal navy, it doesn't want to actually see that it can spread its uh, power sufficiently in a distance. There is no other alternative to an aircraft carrier. And uh, surely that is an argument which is actually between now the within the services itself. But the point is, that the contestation really is going to go now more into the maritime domain and Indian uh, maritime forces, maritime power, if, it, if India wants to be anywhere in the global hierarchy, will have to increase because that is where the contestation is taking place. There is no alternative but to put more money into it. And that's exactly what the Chinese are doing. You have to beat their strategy. Their strategy is Spend more money in, in the Himalayas so that we don't develop into a maritime power. Our strategy is to make sure that that doesn't happen. That is why I always suggest that as far as the Himalayan borders is concerned, 60% of our military power is towards Pakistan. We have these notions of capturing large parts of Pakistani territory, which is actually uh, well past its sell-by date after all the nuclear powers. The type of conflicts that you're going to fight are going to be not the big fight but it's going to be limited. And therefore, we can certainly shift some military power, in fact, quite a, quite a few, from the West to the North. And that should free resources to some extent for maritime power. But that does not mean that you need not increase the budget. After all, the budget as percentage of GDP has been declining for several years. In a situation when there is global, regional, and subcontinental geopolitical frictions. doesn't make any sense. Unless we, uh, it only indicates the priority we are giving to national security. And of course, the issues of our procurement system, the pathologies of the Ministry of Defense itself is a separate issue altogether. But the fact is, as far as the political leadership is concerned, they'll have to walk the talk and make the finances available. If you want to actually be a player in this game. This game is the one, going to be the most important game of the century. Because in the next 10 years, we'll decide what will be and how will power shift take place, how will power be ordered. So I don't think there is a choice here. It will always be a difficult one because India's economy has been devastated by COVID. But that's the choice that the national leadership has to take. And I hope they do. Right. Now, and also, I mean, uh, there's no reason why defense spending cannot catalyze uh, parts of economic growth also. Uh, we've seen that uh, around the world historically, where increased defense spending by the government uh, has led to the boon and the burst of new technologies, new industries. Uh, but then again, that depends on how we open up our defense manufacturing, defense production, procurement. And the rest of it. So it's, it need not necessarily be a strain on the economy if we will increase the defense budget. At present, it's around 2.1% of the GDP, uh, which I'm sure when you ask people, they will tell you that 
you know, this notion of you should spend around 2% of GDP. And these are just notions. Uh, if your threat perception is far greater, there's no reason why you should not be spending more on that. But gentlemen, I want to get one last thought on uh, the issue of the aircraft carrier. So while it's true that we might, we will need an aircraft carrier if we are looking at ourselves over the next 10, 15, 20 years as a maritime power far beyond our immediate sort of shores. Um, yet if we are dealing with, say, uh, the threat of Chinese uh, presence in our in the Indian Ocean, should we be spending on aircraft carriers at, at the moment? Or should we be prioritizing, at least in the short run, uh, more asymmetric sort of approaches? Things like what the Chinese did with the Americans, right? Uh, uh, A2AD type uh, weapons development, which is cheap submarines, uh, mines, and the rest of it. You know, uh, the notion of the aircraft carrier is being shot down on tactical grounds. And one of the arguments is that these sort of big military platforms won't survive the missile age or the age of precision-guided munitions. This is a tactical argument. In fact, we should be concerned that all our civilian facilities are so vulnerable to missiles and precision-guided munitions. After all, the aircraft carrier and the rest of the military instrument is supposed to protect eventually our industrial civilian capacity, including the population. So the vulnerability is thing is a tactical argument against the aircraft carrier. That is, let me tell you, the aircraft carrier moves at a certain speed and it, it can have many devices by which targeting an aircraft carrier may not be that easy. So that's point one. But so that actually is a lower level argument. The major argument, the strategic argument is if India wants to deploy its maritime forces for whatever reason outside the range of our uh, land air force bases then aircraft carriers cannot be done away with because an aircraft carrier can be used at all levels of conflict from peace to show the flag in disaster management in rescue and there is no way that you can actually give the type of air cover to a surface fleet without an aircraft carrier, at least as far as technology is presently concerned. The Navy is asking for a third aircraft carrier. And let me tell you the state of aircraft carriers in the Navy. We've got one now, which is at sea, one in being built for the last 10 to 12 years. Hopefully, a couple of years it will be launched. And this is the third aircraft carrier which they are asking for. It will come into play around 2032, 2035, depending on so many things. Now, an aircraft carrier is a very high maintenance platform. So if you have three aircraft carriers, you can take it that two of them will be operational. One will be on long refit and maintenance. So the Navy is logic. that. Considering the visualization of the maritime contestation and the need for our Navy to be active in areas well outside what air power can uh, support it can get from continental India, 
we definitely require aircraft carriers. And I, I don't need to have to uh, describe the size of the Indian Ocean itself, the littoral, and of course, even across into the South China Sea. The size of the maritime space therefore demands that at least two aircraft carriers, naval guy would have said that we should have more, at least is required. Now, China must be a fool to make, if aircraft carrier was not, you have this argument that aircraft carrier's time is up and it can be targeted, then why is China actually going to make six aircraft carriers? So the point is, a tactical argument is being used. I mean, you're comparing it with submarines, that we should have submarines. Everything is required. It's a balance between, you need air power, you need air support, you need undersea, and obviously submarines will have to be there. It's not submarine versus aircraft carriers. I think that's a false binary. Therefore, the case for an aircraft carrier, I think, is very strong unless India does not want to think in strategic terms. Unless India makes tactical arguments. Then it's different. And I'm afraid that the people who are actually trying to shoot down are making tactical arguments and missing the big picture. Right. Right. No, that's fascinating. And that's very, very useful insight for anybody who's sort of wanting to wade into this debate. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Manoj. This is a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, if you'd like to sort of engage with Takshashila much more, uh, you can do that by going on our website and checking out all our courses. Uh, applications for all of them are open right now. General Mellon is, of course, the Director of Strategic Studies at Takshashila. So if you're interested in defense and foreign affairs um, and all those kinds of things about the difference between strategy and tactics like we just talked about, um, do sign up for those. And you can check them on, uh, out on our website. Uh, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you, Manoj. Please consider signing up for Takshashila's courses. Applications are now open and you can apply at www.takshashila.org.in slash courses. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.